Hello, welcome to episode seven of the Clayton Castle podcast. Now, usually I do an intro for these podcasts, but this guest I'm really excited about. He is someone who <laughs> I have a lot of respect for, and I just really want to just get into this interview. He is a teacher of 35 plus years yes. um, in the school di- in, in schools, 27 of those at my alma mater, Walnut Hills High School. He taught history. He taught U.S. history. He taught my favorite class in high school, ethnic studies, and he is currently on the school board for the Northwest Local School District. I am so thrilled and excited and happy to welcome my favorite teacher from Walnut Hills, Joe Yoshimura. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I, I'm speechless because I, first of all, I never thought I'd talk to you again after high school. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are very few teachers where I'm like, you know, I would want to, I would want to hang out with them. I've always wanted to, but you're not on Facebook, you know, like a lot of teachers are, you're not on social media. So I'm just like, how would I even get a hold of him? And then, um, I saw that a friend of mine who lives in the district said, you went to Walnut, right? And I said, yeah. And he goes, well, one of your teachers, um, or one, a teacher from Walnut, he didn't know I had you, uh, is on our school board. And I said, who? And he said, Joe Yoshimura. And I said, Yosh. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, finally, I can, I, if I ever need him, I'll contact him. And when I got the idea for this episode, uh, we're going to be talking a lot about race and racism um, in our society today. And I said, what better person to have on than my ethnic studies teacher, Yosh. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. And I appreciate you staying awake for at least 75% of the class time <laughs> during the year. Well, and I, and I told you before, I was like, I don't, you know, 35 years, you had a lot of students in 35 years. I should write volumes of books on, <laughs> on just experiences, let me tell you. And they would be all banned by whomever. <laughs> well, and I, and I told you, I was like, I don't know if he's even going to remember me. I was like, what what can I do to, you know, to have him remember me? And I pulled out, a, I have my ethnic studies notebook here. <laughs> I took your class 10 years ago. Can you believe, first of all, can you believe that? 10 years ago, yeah. I was in your class and I told him two things. I was like, I was probably the one, because I had you first bell and Walnut then, I don't know if it still does, started at 7.30. Correct. I was like, I, I probably slept in his class. And <laughs> most, of, most of your, not all, but most of your tests were open note. Yeah. And I pulled out a test where I got a 64D. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> On an open note test now. Folks, if you can figure out how in the heck you can get a crummy D <laughs> on an open note test, if you can figure that out, please, you know, get in touch with Clayton because <laughs> I can't figure it out. Well, and you never did um, uh, Scantron tests. They were, nah. they were all like fill in the blanks, explain this, explain that. So your tests, whether it was open note or closed note, they weren't easy by any means. Well, so- I'll tell you what. If I gave you a Scantron test, it's A, B, C, or D, and the answer's right there, and I'm not giving you any of the uh, seniors that I had the chance to guess it right. So it was it was mostly essay questions, and uh, I, I wanted to make the kids think, because that's the most important thing, and that's a good building block for later on in life, that they start thinking about stuff thinking about the things they learned and, and things like that. So, you know, if he got a D, <laughs> he deserved it. <laughs> well, 
And so I want to actually start there. I didn't know where I was going to start with this. I just want to start talking and see where, but since we talked about my test, ethnic studies is not, you know, that's not a class you really think of being taught in school. Was that your brainchild? Was that your idea to start yeah, teaching that? Yeah, actually it was uh, the way we went with it. Um, there was a former teacher and God rest her soul who was in there for eons who taught a course uh, it was just a survey course, and it was out of a piddly first-grade vocabulary book for for juniors and seniors. So when I got there, um, they asked me if I would um, create a new new course. And I says, well, if I create a new course, I'm going to create a course with my own trademark on it. And they said, just hand in this stuff and tell me, tell us what you want to do, and and we'll, we'll take it down to the curriculum people down at the board, and we'll get it okayed. So we basically phased out this woman. She was a little pissed off at me because I took all her classes. But the first first couple of years were kind of rough because they expected this course to be a, a rinky-dink Mickey Mouse course. When I made them read, and I made them think. And I made them discuss stuff and uh, they just were not ready for that transition. So uh, it was pretty tough. But eventually, um, as as Clayton knows, uh, I had four full classes of seniors because they all and I keep telling this to my friends who said, you know, you taught that course. huh?" I says, yeah, I says. I taught seniors too because those are the only guys that got my raunchy humor. So <laughs> it was all good. Yeah, no, when I called you, um, I called you on Monday, this past Monday. I was still in Nashville when I called you. Um, the most fun I've had on the phone in a really <laughs> long time. Because <laughs> it just brought back so many memories. That was you in high school. Yeah. yeah like well, you have not changed one bit. Uh, well, thank God. And uh, not much to the chagrin of a lot of people who are. Uh, con connected with the uh, district, uh, don't catch my humor or my um, sharp uh, tongue as far as dealing with stuff. And uh, it's going to cost me. And uh, I, as you know, <clears throat> I'm running for re-election and uh, I'm sure that people are going to question my, uh, well, I guess my mannerisms and my behavior but I will tell you this, I'm I'm an honest guy mm -hmm. and I'm 99% of the time I'm willing to tell you, tell people the truth. That 1% I lie to my wife, but then she beats me up. So, you know, everything's <laughs> fine. But, uh, you know, um, if you do live in the district and you remember Mr. Yosh or you're an alum of Walnut Hills, uh, I would appreciate your vote. So there's my political plug right there. You know, I told you before we started that the way I explain you is you were loud, you were boisterous, that you were, so your class, I want to say, I'm going to get it wrong, 331? Was that the room number? 336. Come on, Dang buddy. it. <laughs> um, yeah, because you're, you're right next to DeMoss. I remember that. Yeah. But anyway, so you're like at the very end of the hallway. Did you ever have to use the John with my turtle as the... Uh... I did. <laughs> I had I this... I did. <laughs> most, most of the teachers had these goofy, uh, I, I, I don't know what you call it, these generic hall passes. But Yashimura, 
he was different. So I got this turtle, this rubber turtle, and I put it on a leash. So anytime one of my seniors had to go to the the restroom or get a drink of water, take the turtle. And they, I'd laugh my tail off because I'd see him walking down the hallway dragging this turtle. <laughs> and all these teachers would look, ah, oh, that's Yasha Morris, kid. <laughs> well, and like I was going to say, you know, you're at the very end of the hallway and that hallway, the entire third floor is long. I mean, I don't know how long it is, but we could hear you yelling at kids from like the library. And anyone who knows <clears throat> who's from Walnut Hills knows that's a long way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so yeah. you knew you were approaching Yosha's class if you, you know, when you when you can hear. I, I love uh, I love the stories of my seniors, especially. But I remember the Effies when they first mm -hmm. came in and they had 18 pounds in their backpack and they're leaning forward because that way they could balance themselves. Yeah. That was me. And, 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 <laughs> no, not when. No, well, I'm, well, I didn't know you then, but I remember this one kid. He came into my classroom and he had the wrong class because it was senior class. He says, he looks in and I says, let me see your, uh, your schedule. And it wasn't my class. I says, yeah, this is the right class. Come on, sit down. Oh, no. I said, sit down in the front seat there. And my, my seniors start piling in and they're looking at this little Effie, a seventh grader, and they're, they're, they're kind of giggling. And they're looking at me. And, and this Effie was looking around like everybody had three eyes. He couldn't believe it. He, I, and he, it finally dawned on him that this wasn't his class, so he, <laughs> he was getting up to walk out, and I says, where are you going? And the kid says, I think I have the wrong class. I says, let me see that schedule again. So I took a look at the schedule, and he was in the new building. Oh, God. So he had to go. I said, okay, he, I'll give you directions in the new building. I says, you see those stairwell, that stairwell there? You go all the way down to the end. You go out the, the doors to, the, at the bottom. You turn right. Uh, an acute right and keep walking. Uh, that happened to be the practice soccer field. <laughs> so the, I says, I told the seniors, hey, come on, we got to take a look at this. See, see. And he got out the door and he started walking. He thought, this ain't right either. <laughs> so he came back and I guess he went to the main office. But I had a lot of fun yeah. with those little guys. Well, and, and despite that story, one thing that I did love is you really did, though, care about the students and, I, cared, and cared about their well-being and made sure that they were doing a good job in their classes. Yeah, I, I think the, the most important thing was to build a foundation to take those, those ideas with them through life, but also to, to seek the truth whenever they can and fight for the truth if they know they're right. And that, and that's, that's to me is the most important things. I think I, I'm, I mean, I'll, I'll probably think of something later on, but you know, just to pull in the knowledge and then parse out the, the crap from the, the truth. And then when they meet somebody in a social uh, event or uh, environment that they just, you know, strike up a conversation and stick to your guns. Speak the truth and believe what you're saying is the truth. And that's that's what I wanted my kids 
my seniors especially, to believe in. That's why I loved your ethnic studies class, because the ethnic studies class, it taught me, it taught me a lot. Obviously, from just a very pure fact standpoint, it taught me a lot. But more so, it gave me the information I needed to care and to understand and to really learn where people who don't look like me, people who are different from me, why they feel the way they do, why African-Americans feel like they may be targeted because of things like Tulsa or you know these, these certain incidents. And so that's really what I took from your ethnic studies class is to, to learn to care and to, to really understand. You, you know, you, it's interesting you brought a thing up about Tulsa because I had a book called From Slavery to Freedom by John Hope Franklin. And I read bits and pieces of it but I got into the rioting and believe me, there were numerous um, news commentators uh, that spew out political stuff that never heard about Tulsa. I taught Tulsa mm-hmm. way back when. It was not a lot, but they know that something happened there. And then I taught, taught them stuff like uh, the Tuskegee experiment uh, I taught them uh, Emmett Till. Emmett Till. Oh my God. Medgar Evers. Oh, Medgar Evers. I mean, oh. all these, all these people who, you know, there were times last year, obviously with all the George Floyd protests and oh everything that God. happened with that. And my, I, God bless my fiance. You know, I, she's a teacher herself, and she took the initiative to educate herself on a lot of these things. I would like to say that I helped her. I did not, even though I had this notebook, but. Um, 64D. I don't know if she wanted me helping her. <laughs> you don't put that on top of your notes, man. <laughs> but no, she. I mean, like she bought books. She, you know, she she learned about Tulsa. She learned about all these things that I learned in your class, and um, that's what I took from your class is learning and understanding. And now people are starting to realize why learning that is important. Well, I. It's interesting that you said that because. Um, you know, we did discuss in depth the the African-American um, experience in the United States. And it, it to me, it was a very tragic history throughout. And with the rising or the resurrecting of it in a way that they they had a they developed a movement called Black Lives Matter. I I keep telling everybody, black lives do matter, but all lives matter. You know, whether you're Asian, whether you're Hispanic, whether you're Irish American, um, Native American, whatever, everybody's lives matter. And once we get to communicate, to dialogue with each other, the more we understand yeah, I, I didn't know that. Well, the more than that, that person who's asking the questions will have a better understanding of what they went through or what they are going through today. Um, uh, I, I will tell you, it was uh, the course was broken down to four major groups. I might be wrong. I, you know, my brain is kind of fuzzy now. Anyways, I broke it down to African-Americans, Asian-Americans, Native American, Hispanic-Americans. Mm-hmm. And we went through it all. And uh, 
I lived on a Native American reservation and I brought all my notes in and I, you know, and you can, you can spew out, you know, tens of thousands of statistics, but I lived on that reservation and I saw the alcoholism, the suicide rates, the poverty. I saw it all and, and just the total depression of these people. And yet they are still strong. They don't have a, a, a casino on the Northern Cheyenne Reservation yet as of 2021, I believe. They want to preserve their land for, for their Native American heritage. Um, but I was there and I talked to people and I listened and I asked questions and things like that to give me a better knowledge. And that's why the class was important because I can relay that knowledge of what I learned specifically about Native Americans to the kids. And then the Asian Americans, which we will get into later about my family. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I wanna impart that knowledge on them too because you know, there's always one goofball in your social environment. And you know who I'm talking about, folks, who spew out some goofy statistic and you'll say, that's not right. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is the way it really happened. Well, you don't know. Oh, yes, I do know because I was taught that. I that was a hands-on you know, education that I got. So that's what I try to do at Walnut. We thought that racism was getting better. Racism was like winding down per se. Um, Will Smith, the actor Will Smith said it best. He said that racism is not getting worse or getting, is not going away. It's getting filmed. Yeah. And um, so, and God bless the, that, that girl who took the video of George Floyd because we wouldn't be seeing this social justice movement had that not happened. Yeah. Well, so what are, you, what are your thoughts on racism now versus the racism that you taught us? I, I, I think that the racism today in 2021, um, I, I'm glad the media is now getting more involved and asking more questions. And, you know, I just saw something where they took Robert E, or not Robert E. Lee, but uh, yeah, Robert E. Lee's statue down. And then they took Stonewall Jackson's, yeah, Stonewall Jackson's uh, statue down. Racism today is still alive and well. It's just submerged. Mm -hmm. And it, it came, became very apparent with the rise of these right-wing crazy groups out there that spew nothing but hate and, you know, and the revisionists who are out there like uh, that one woman, Green, who's a U.S. rep, who said, who makes the masking equivalent to Holocaust. And I, yeah, I, I, I'm was... looking at her and I'm thinking, where in the hell did you get that analogy? Well, she, it, I, I believe it's 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 there. It, it's there beneath that thin veneer. But I think so. Uh, social media and you know the media out there are beginning to realize that they better start doing something mm -hmm. about this to 
teach the people, educate the people who either read their papers or watch TV to start thinking that this actually happens. And and they're not, well, some of them are, and it's emerging, but there's just that real thick layer of racism that's still there. And that's that to me is a shame because this country, and I'm not saying it was founded on democracy because people were not guaranteed their constitutional rights after they became citizens after the Civil War. But what I am saying is that the more and more people start asking questions and start dialoguing with other people other than their own ethnicity, we're going to be better off. And then maybe the tide will turn and we can uh, we can change some of the uh, um, legislation and social um, environments in the in this country. Well, and you're still seeing legislation passed that is meant to restrict certain people from, from voting. Like, well, I'm, not to get too political, but I'm, I'm going to go here. That that election law in Georgia where you can't even you can't even pass out water to people. And, who, and that was indiscriminate. You don't know if that person's a Republican or a Democrat. You're giving them a, a bottle of water or some cookies to munch on while they're waiting in line. Yeah, that is totally inane. I, I, I just don't understand that. But they're, you know. Um, state by state, they're starting to, the, the Republican legislatures, dominated state legislatures are thinking about doing, going the, uh, the model that they did in Georgia. And it's crazy. Texas, my God, that is a mess right now because right now the minorities are rising up and they're mm-hmm. saying, no, this isn't democracy. You're, 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 developing a situation where you want to keep your power. And, you know, the gerrymandering, that, that is insane because they, they systematically gerrymandered some of these districts. So, you know, we've got a few black people, but we got a whole bunch of white folks or we've got a few minorities here. So let's just take a thin razor blade and cut right through it. And the, the dominant uh, race will will get back into power. And it makes no sense. Well, and when you talk about gerrymandering, when people think of Ohio, they think of that district that runs, runs you know, along the top of the state. For me, what's even more of a, a shame is that Cincinnati is probably one of the most liberal cities in Ohio, outside of Cleveland, maybe. Well, no, not maybe for sure. But yet the way that they gerrymander these two congressional <laughs> districts Districts one and district two, they split the city so that um, district two goes from the east side of Cincinnati all the way out to eastern Ohio so that they can get all those voters out there. In the rural areas. In the rural areas. And then in district one, it's the west side of Cincinnati and then all of Warren County. Yeah. So in a city that is overwhelmingly blue, I mean, the entire Hamilton County commissioners are, are, are Democrat. The most of city council is Democrat, except for the people who are being appointed right now. And and yet there's no Democrat rep, Democratic representation in Congress. Uh, I will tell you this right now. 
I even have some conservative Republican friends who are saying, Steve Shabbat's got to go. Yeah. And so what I'm going to do in the primary, if, if the Republican Party can come up with some young person to challenge Shabbat, I'll vote for him. I will vote for him. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to vote for that Republican in a general election. Right. So, yeah, I, I mean, the gerrymandering is just so crazy. I mean, we still have people in Warren County and Butler County that still have their Trump Pence signs up. Yep. So, you, you know, that's that's the way it's going right now. And I mean, he's like the puppet master. He's pulling the strings and everybody's all these legislators are afraid of him because they'll lose 20 percent of their vote if they go against him. Yep. And that's what keeps them in office. And, you know, so they'll they'll kowtow to Trump, kiss the ring and win another election. Well, well and that's what I'm reading with the U.S. Senate race here in Ohio is they're all there's three major candidates and then some other minor candidates. And they're all going to Mar-a-Lago for his endorsement. Oh, sure. They're they're all trying to kowtow to this guy for his endorsement because they think if he if they get his endorsement, that that's the ticket to win. And, and you know that's why I blame the electorate because they should be more educated as far as what these people are standing for or who's endorsing them or you know I'm I'm sure that closer to the November or closer to the primaries, Trump will make his way into Ohio and start talking about some of these candidates and how we we need to have them in there and stuff like that. You know, the, for the average voter, I think they need to read up more, to be educated, read books, um, listen to social media. As I, and, and I'm not saying just listen to, you know, you know, the liberals. I'm saying listen to the, uh, to the conservatives and then make up your own mind. Don't be led to, uh, you know, like lambs to the slaughterhouse. That's not good. You make up your own mind. I had a, I gave a uh, presentation on the uh, internment camps, which I guess we'll talk about later. But it was mostly about the plight of the uh, undocumented workers. As you know, when you were in my class, we got undocumented workers. I snuck them in. Yeah. But I needed you guys to know, to listen to their stories of how much pain they went through to get from El Salvador or Guatemala all the way to the United States and finally to Cincinnati. But I gave this speech and there were some undocumented workers there. And uh, boy, they, they are just so happy to be in the United States, but they know as soon as La Migra finds out about them, immigration, they could be gone in a heartbeat. Yeah. So, um, but uh, this one kid gets up because she was working with Sukasa and uh, La Amistad that was once based in Winton Place. And they, uh, they said, you know, it's tough being a college kid to cart these people around to the medical centers and stuff like that. Is there any possible way, you know, because, you know, we're just poor college students. And I and I thought about it and 
the one guy was up there and said, yeah, you know, we just got to guts it up and everything else. So I get up there and I says, I got a solution. Register to vote uh -huh. and get your friends to register to vote. And let's turn the tide on this because this is ridiculous. When a ex-president, when he was president, touted himself that he's going to build this stupid wall and it's not going to keep the people out. That's number one. Number two, it's not completed. And number three, and this is the most incredible thing, that some of these governors are sending their National Guard down there. Yeah. Uh, specifically, that lady, the governor from South Dakota. And I actually have, believe it or not, a couple of weeks ago, I have a friend that lives in a uh, small town in South Dakota who called me. And he says, I'm going to use, you know, Tell me as much as you can about the internment camps and how we should learn and teach this history and not um, and not teach what the governor wants us, wants the kids to learn, that the United States is a world power and all this stuff, excluding the people who built this country, who took the jobs to that that made this country great. Um, so yeah, she's going to send some troops down there and, um, shore up the, uh, the protection. So we won't get all these, according to Trump, the drug dealers, the rapists, the criminals and stuff like that. There's, and, and you know, Clayton, as well as I do, that the people that I brought in didn't look like drug dealers. No, they didn't look like, uh, um, criminals. Um, they were very, very humble people. And it, I cried yeah. after every session, even though I heard it like four or five times. It, 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 it got to me. In any class that you take, there are very rarely classes where you have certain memories, like vivid memories of something you learned in that class or something that happened in that class. For your class, there were several of those moments. And I have never told a soul about that moment because I was always afraid I don't want to get Yosh in trouble. Oh. And and well and you even said like just don't tell anyone basically. Well yeah I was but, breaking federal law actually. Well and you and you were but and I never I've never told my parents that I've never told my fiance <laughs> that I've never told anyone You but, can you can tell them now. Okay good. <laughs> but I vividly remember one story from that moment. It was a young mother and I she even had her baby there too. And she said, my husband has been deported three times, two or three times. And, you know, these are not, like you said, these are not people, these are not rapists. They're not drug dealers. They're not, you know, do, do, do one or two come over? Like, do, do they have, yeah, but just like they're not all cops are bad, you know, yeah. but a majority of these people are coming here for a better life. You hear these stories. There were four people there that day. I remember it was in the black box theater at Walnut and it was 7.30 in the morning. I'm like, oh, what are these people? And then you told us what was happening. And then I just remembered those stories so vividly. Yeah, it 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 it, it was one of those, during the year, that was probably one of my my fondest moments of bringing these people in because I would shuffle them in the back door. Mm -hmm. way would know, and then I shuffle them out, get them to their cars and they're on their way um, through their sponsors who drove the cars over. And uh, they were, when, when I said goodbye to them, 
I said, I hope things turn better. And I hope that this woman um, has been very lucky as far as staying in the country and raising her children here because for them to come from a country that is totally um, chaotic and and the the poverty is just soaring in these countries. What the United States should do is start saying, okay, we're going to send you your millions and millions of dollars to your country for foreign aid, but we're going to earmark every bit of that money. And if you don't come through, we're cutting it off. And these people, they want to stay in El Salvador. They want to stay in Guatemala. They want to stay in Panama. They want to stay in their home countries. They don't want to come here. They come here be because they want to survive and have their children survive and stuff like that. And it is just, just an incredibly sad situation, but I, I always wish him good luck and, and, and that hopefully life will be better for them. So we're going to talk, as you said, we're going to talk more about the internment camp, the okay. uh, Japanese internment camps. But one thing I want to make on this point of undocumented immigrants is when early in the Trump presidency, we saw these pictures, these images, these videos of these kids at the border in cages. Oh. Um, oh and a lot of people compared that, that moment to the Japanese internment camps. As a Japanese American, how did you feel about that comparison and that moment in history? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, it, it was a different time period in American history. We're dealing with two different types of minorities, but they, both of them still got screwed. And for Trump to mandate that they separate these undocumented children from their parents, God, I almost threw my shoe through the TV set when he said that, when they came out with that mandate. And, and I thought to myself, are, are you crazy? You're separating these, these children. To a certain extent, it happened in the Japanese internment camps. So if we can move on to that. But I was totally yeah. appalled when they, when they separated these children and then shipped them around the country. So the parents, the Hispanic parents, wouldn't know where in the hell they were. Um, I mean, they were shipping them to New York, to all these other places. And the parents are deported. <laughs> imagine if you are sitting there listening to this. Imagine if your parents were all of a sudden gone. The law enforcement people take you out of your home and put you into one of these cages and eventually ship you to a different part of the country that you have no idea of what you might as well be on the moon because it was just very strange. But it, try to imagine being reunited with your family. That's, that's heartbreaking. I mentioned these moments in your class where, again, vivid memory. We were studying the Japanese-American section. You showed us a slideshow of pictures from Japanese internment camps. If people don't know, this was right after uh, the bombing of Pearl Harbor. 
And FDR basically, um, you know, made an executive order that said Japanese um, Americans needed to go to these internment camps out in the West. And two, nearly two thirds, there's a lot of things that are hypocritical about these internment camps. I think the biggest thing is two thirds of these were American citizens. Two, a lot of these were, you know, Americans, people born here. They were Niseis and Sanseis that were, that were in these internment camps. So anyway, you showed us this, this slideshow and you got to the very last picture and you started tearing up. Can you talk a little bit about what that picture was? It's still emotional. But my sister, just to give you a little background on this slide, my sister took my dad to the Art Institute in Chicago, because that's where I'm originally from, Chicago. And they had the um, pictures blown up of, of the people who were involved with the internment, the, the Issei's, Nisei's, and Sansei's. And uh, so they're going through this, and my I call him Daddy. I mean, he's passed on, but... Daddy and, and my sister Barb would go past these big pictures blown up. And they finally got to the one and my dad stood there silently. And he said, I, we've gotta go. So my sister actually had to take him by the arm. Now here's this guy who still can walk he was still very mobile. My sister had to carry him out arm in arm. They finally got in the car and my sister said, you know that last blown up picture? She says, yeah, I remember. They were making mochi, which is a, a Japanese rice dish. And he says, that's your grandfather. So I needed verification and I went back to Chicago and I specifically took that one slide and I says, dad, can I talk to you outside? He says, uh, I got to show you something. So he says, sure, Joe. So he, we went out to my van because I had like a couple of kids and my wife visiting. So went out in the van and I showed him the picture. He says, who do you see in that slide, Dad? He says, and he looked at me, he says, that's your grandpa. So when I always end up the slide presentation, I always, I always show that slide because I never met my grandfather, but he's alive and well in that slide. And he looked just like my dad. And it was tough. Okay. To me, that kind of felt like that slide was the reason that you were there in that classroom teaching this to us. To show us, you know, yeah, we're American. Yeah, there's a lot of good things that our country can do, but there are also things that our country is not so proud of. And unfortunately, your family was 
directly um, involved in those not so pleasant moments in our country's history. Yeah. Um, they were violated or they were um, deprived of their 14th Amendment's rights. And um, even though my dad and my brother and my sister were U.S. citizens, they had to be carted off to a, I call them concentration camps. Everybody else say said that they were internment camps. No, they were concentration camps. When you deny people of their rights, when you feed them crap for food for the first couple of months, when you when you tell the kids that they cannot go past the barbed wire fences or they'll be shot by the uh, the armed guards who are in the machine gun towers and the big spotlights. That's not an internment camp. That's a concentration camp. And, and you know, I'd like to say to the Jewish folks in this country, you know, the camps were similar to yours. The end result was not. And God bless those six and a half million people who the, the historical revisionists in this country said that it never happened, that they were exterminated. I, I firmly believe that there, there, there's analogies to be drawn from our Japanese American uh, concentration camps to those in Poland and Germany and a few other places in Europe. Um, those 14 Amendment rights were challenged by people who finally stood up after a couple months in the camps and they finally says, you have no right to imprison us. And for that, they went, they, they went all the way to Supreme Court. There's a um, Supreme Court case, Korematsu versus United States. They ruled against Korematsu and said, stay in the camps. So it, it was pretty tough. As you mentioned, you taught us about the four major ethnicities, four races. Yeah. Um, you know, there's this huge debate now. I've always said, you know, since this whole critical race theory debate has gone on, that ethnic studies, based on what we learned, it was kind of very similar to what critical race theory is. What is your view, not necessarily on critical race theory, but just the teaching of different races and ethnicities and their histories and how it um, applies to not just today's society, but legislation today in, in the way our system is set up. Should, should those kind of issues and those histories be taught in schools? I definitely think they should be taught. Um, because of those four groups, I did do a, a, a kind of like touching on the political, the economic, the social discrimination that was forced upon those four major groups today. I think that those, those uh, ideas and those historical things should be taught in the high schools as well as the colleges. I'm not too sure that the, the elementary school level kids can understand it, but uh, as a member of the Board of Education, I, I decided just to speak up because there was, there was a um, bunch of incidents where 
you know, uh, we had anti-Asian um, people getting beat up or killed. I watched this 80-year-old grandmother, they filmed it, somebody filmed it, thank God, who was kicked right in the stomach. And she was just coming back from the, uh, probably the supermarket or wherever. And she fell down and, you know, that, and also that thing that happened, I believe, was it Atlanta, Georgia? where the people were killed at the uh, uh, health spas or the massage parlors. Oh, yeah. Um, and they were just gunned down, too. Um, so I, I got up there and at, towards the end because they asked for board members to make their comments, their parting shots. And I said, and I had the editorials. I said, you see this? Over 1,800 incidents in the last year were against Asian Americans, yet they were not publicized. Nobody knows what happened. We only take a look at uh, the mass mur uh, murders of those people that worked in massage parlors. Um, there's very little taught on the internment camps. The only time, I will tell you this, that kids in high schools learn about the internment camps is when a history teacher would invite me um, to speak to the kids with the slides. So I did a couple classes, one in an AP history class at Coleraine, another one was a uh, US history class at Coleraine. So I, I got to thinking that maybe this should not just be a one-shot deal. Mm -hmm. They should have they should develop a curriculum, uh, a course in the curriculum that teaches a survey of everybody. Not only the four, but you know, the Irish Americans and the Italian Americans, they all suffered when they when they came. Even the German Americans in Cincinnati were, were kind of like uh, violently discriminated against. I mean, they changed names of German streets to Americanized street names because we were at war with, with Germany. I, I think it, it was very important. And um, so the other ones, they, they, they went around and they, 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 they asked the other ones for theirs. And believe it or not, the other three of the four uh, people um, who are on the board made comments, yes, I agree with you. I think that would be a good idea to involve themselves in the curriculum. Um, to this day, nothing has been done. So I'll keep pushing as long as I can. Win or lose the election come, in, come November, I will tell you this, that I will speak out for some kind of course that teaches that. Now, if the state legislatures mandate to their state boards of educations that they should um, deviate from teaching about African-American history or Asian-American history or Hispanic-American history or even the social minorities like the gays and the lesbians and the transgender people. And they tell them to, to hold off on that, to, to tone it down. I think that's wrong because that's what America uh, is based upon, the history of these people and their struggles to succeed and become um, good American citizens and, and, and people that want to be respected. 
And if these guys get their way and mandate to the boards of education to those states, shame on you. There's one more kind of serious topic, I guess you want to talk um, that I want to address, and then we'll. I have one lighthearted thing I kind of want to do. Oh uh, my god! <laughs> I want to go through my. This 60- has been a morbid session, and he's going to end it up with something lighthearted. I want to go through my 64D and see if you can give me the right answers. <laughs> um, that that grade will never change. <laughs> Dang it! <laughs> um, I mean, I still got the diploma, so I win in the end. Yeah. Okay. Um, but anyway, so. Um, obviously with coronavirus, there's been a, well, and even before then, really, there's been a lot of recent kind of uptick in Asian American racism in this country. Now you've been a teacher, you have been a school board member, you were a sports, you were a basketball official, you were an umpire. In slow pitch softball. Slow pitch softball for years, for, for, for decades. Have you ever experienced racism, if you don't mind me asking, in, in, in your own life? Yeah, I have. Uh, as you know, I always tell everybody, number one, my grading scale and interview, I, all my seniors start groaning, but then I tell them I'm from Chicago, Illinois, so I'm as American as anybody else in this classroom. But I remember a couple of incidents. One, I was I just started out as a referee in basketball and uh, it was a little kid's game because all that we were doing is doing those games for beer money. I mean, it it, it was great because I would do two or three games and it would pay for my beer for about a week. Then I'd do them again and then, you know, whatever. But uh, <laughs> one specific thing, I was in Finneytown doing a little kid's game, walk out to my car, and I'm dead tired after three or four games. And it, somebody had written on my card, Jap. And I thought, what the hell is this? Well, evidently a parent or whomever didn't like that, the way I was calling my game. So they decided to attack my ethnicity rather than saying, you're a shitty ref or something like that. Then I had another one where my son was up the street here and he got involved with a little dink uh, on this one lady's car. And I guess she was looking for a payout, which never happened. But uh, she gets out of the car. She says, you people should not even be in this country. And I'm thinking to myself, if her husband wasn't there and if he was, I was going to say to my son, you take her husband and knock the crap out of him because I'm going to slap the shit out of her for saying that. And then just recently, I this butcher store that I frequent a lot, it was during the pandemic. So I walked in there and they were only allowing six people at a time, but you had to wear a mask and everything was cool. So I walk in there and Sure enough, this butcher says, it's your fault that all of this is happening. And I looked at him and I tried to laugh it off, but he said it in front of a bunch of people. Now, I could have just said, okay, get my stuff and get the hell out of there. No, I called the owner of the butcher store and I said, look. And he says, Joe, you know, you joke around a lot. I says, yeah, I do, but this is not joking around. We're not talking about the Reds or the 
the Bengals or whatever. We're talking about some person's ethnicity or generalizing on their ethnicity in front of all these other five people that are in the store. And I take umbrage to that. So I haven't seen him. I don't know if he left the place um, or they call him in the back room so he doesn't have to be out there waiting on me or being out there so I can see him. But I was I was pissed. I was really pissed. I remember you telling the story about your car um, in our class. The other two stories I had never heard because I guess those are more recent. Other really weird thing is, uh, I, I don't know if you were in that senior class, but somebody put a swastika in magic marker on my desk. They put a swastika in there. So, you know, I, I understand, you know, we're getting a plethora or a variance of students there. And some of them have deep-seated feelings and attitudes that their parents teach them. I don't know why the hell they took the course, but they were so angry, I guess, that I was teaching, you know, basic, uh, not liberal, but basic history about the facts of what these people have gone through, that the kid actually put a swastika on my desk. And I took a picture of it. I can't find it now, but I was, I called the main office and they said, oh, we'll get a janitor to wash it off. I said, that's, that's it? not the solution to this. The solution is we've got a, a, a right-wing racist in my in, in this school. And I'm sure, you know, as, as large as the population is Walnut, uh, when you were there, uh, you know darn well that there were some ultra conservatives right. in, in there. And they were, they're ultra conservatives because their parents teach them that crap. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I was reading my notes last night, just kind of study up on this. <laughs> but in big bold letters, I have in there somewhere, racism is not hereditary, it's taught. Yeah. And that line stuck out to me. And I was just like, yeah, it is. Because when you talk about, um, I know not a lot of people know a lot about critical race theory, but the biggest reason why, and this is a study done by um, YouGov and YouTube, I think, and said that conservatives are against critical race theory because they see racism as personal, whereas everybody else who's for critical race theory see racism <clears throat> as systemic. Is that a fair assessment? That's a very fair assessment of it. <clears throat> you know, it still sticks in my mind about the, it's not hereditary, but it's, it's, it's the socialization of young kids, you know? And, 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 and if they change the curriculum yeah. of, of these classes to teach something that is ultra conservative, um, good luck with education in the United States. Well, and it was ethnic studies. This is kind of, kind of a funny story. Ethnic studies was the was the class that drove me. Originally, my major in college was um, social studies education, secondary education, because I wanted to teach ethnic studies because I thought that was an important class. And then someone at NKU, when I was there, told me, don't go into social studies. You're never going to find a job because <laughs> they they were like, if you want to be a teacher, teach math and um, math and science. Yeah. Um, but I also felt as though 
like looking back on now, I could not have done that class justice the way that you did because of your own experiences and because of the way that you built that class, the way that you taught that class. And I think a lot of that class had to do with your personality too and who you are. So you made that class fun for a very serious, very serious topics. And I know, I know the, the guys in the class loved you because, you know, you would also show sports movies yeah. in class. <laughs> you show uh, radio. Yeah. One, yeah. Um, I, my, about two or three months ago, I, my fiance and I watched Glory Road. Aww. And, um, you know, she didn't really know what that was about. And I explained to her, I was like, you know, back then it was uh, Texas Western and they were starting their five black players in the national championship game against an all white Kentucky team. And they'd offer up, I kind of explained that to her. She loved the movie. Um, so, you know, taking what, you know, people are interested in like sports and applying it to the class. I just think was really special. I, and I couldn't, I couldn't have done that class. Just well, so. I appreciate your, your compliment there, but I try to reach, you know, all the kids in the class, you know, um, whether it's through film or talking and, and joking around with them or bringing up some anecdotal thing that, you know, happened to a certain minority or something I experienced. I think the kids got a pretty well-rounded education. So I guess I'll close by saying, um, you know, you had such a big influence in my life. You oh. and I and I I emailed you all of this because I had not talked to you in ten years, and I just all of a sudden you get a, like a a long email from me. But you really did. You taught me not just again not just the facts of what happened, but you taught me to have empathy. You taught me to, towards these different minority groups. You taught me to really pay attention and to stay informed with what's happening. You are the reason why I don't. I see color, but I don't see color. I don't treat people like I see color. I, as, as far as I, I treat them like they're my brother, you know? <clears throat> so I want to say just thank you for everything you've done in my life. Thank you for the influence that you had in my life through that class and through just you being you. I, I just want to end this by saying that uh, um, whenever I signed a yearbook, I think I wrote this down, without justice, there's no peace. Mm-hmm. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, Let's go drink beer. Right. <laughs> well, thank you, Yosh. And we will be right back. Welcome back, everyone. I really hope that you enjoyed that conversation with Yosh as much as I did. Um, he is a fantastic man. He is a great person to learn from. And, you know, he gave me so much in my life that I just felt as though I had to have him on to have this conversation about uh, racism today and what we can do about it. And I'm just really happy with how that interview turned out. So thank you to everyone who listened to it. 
Um, with that, that is actually the end of season one of the Clayton Castle podcast. I am still debating on whether to come back for a season two. You know, I had a blast these seven episodes telling stories. And when I got laid off in March, that's all I wanted to do was to continue to tell stories. And I knew as soon as I was laid off that I wanted to start a podcast. It was my dream, but I just never found the time or the energy to do so. And when I got laid off, I said, this is the perfect opportunity for me to do that. And I, um, you know, I invested in the equipment. I invested the time. I am really happy and pleased with how it, how it turned out. And with that, I want to thank a couple of people before I sign off for what may or may not be the last time. I don't know yet. First off, I want to just thank everybody who tuned in some week after week, some for a particular episode. But if you listen to at least one episode, I'm very thankful for you and for your time to listen to these uh, stories. I want to thank all of my guests that allowed me to tell their stories. Uh, Robert Weidel, he is a man who is my mentor in in a lot of different ways. The first time I pulled out this equipment was in his dining room table, <laughs> and I didn't I I didn't know what I was doing, and he was very patient and kind with me. And that interview turned out great, and I could not have asked for a better first guest. He's a great friend of mine, and I thank him a lot. Um, I also want to thank Rodney Muterspaul, Pam Dillion, Pat Castle, Zach Farrell, Heather Baker, and obviously Joe Yoshimura. Um, everyone told great stories, and I'm very thankful to have these people in my life. I also want to thank my my beautiful fiance, my soon-to-be wife in just a few days, Heather. There were multiple times where I wanted to quit this podcast because I am someone who comes from a business of analytics. I would look at the numbers, who was listening to, or how many people, I can't tell who's listening, but how many people are listening to each episode. And there were times where I was, I would just get down, really down about it. And, you know, that's how we looked at it in the media business. Who's looking at this post? Um, how many people are interacting with this post? And there were times where I just felt like no one was listening. What's the point? Heather always drew me back to, well... Why did you start this podcast? Did you do it for the listens or to tell the stories? So that always drew me back in. And um, I could not have been more blessed to have Heather in my life to keep me going, to center me back to the real purpose of this podcast. And I am so excited to marry her. And by the time this podcast is dropped... Um, we'll be getting married in two days. So, um, I just want to thank her for everything. So that's it. Thank you all for tuning in to this episode, to all seven episodes. I really hope you enjoyed these stories that these guests told that I 
was blessed enough to interview to tell these stories. Um, that was the ultimate goal, was to tell the stories of these interesting and fascinating people. And I really hope I did that, and I really hope you liked it. Um, I'm going to take some time off. I'm going to take about at least a month off, and then really decide whether to come back. So that's it. Thank you so much. Whether I can bring come back or not, I will see you around. Thank you all again.